from PRI, Public Radio International. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw! She cried wildly. The monkey's paw! He started up in alarm. Where? Where? What is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it! It's in the parlor, on the bracket, he replied, marveling over why. She cried and laughed together and, bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what, he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied. We've only had one! You're listening to John Lithgow reading from the classic short tale, The Monkey's Paw, which we'll be hearing later on this edition of Selected Shorts, a celebration of the short story, a series that originates in live performance on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. I'm Isaiah Sheffer. On this program, we invite you to join us at a delightful evening of story, poems, and fiction, at which we turn the symphony space stage over to our great friend, the actor and writer John Lithgow. He brought along his friend, the inimitable actor and clown Bill Irwin. Together, the pair had a great deal of fun reading an assemblage of verse from John's anthology, The Poet's Corner. Let's listen to John Lithgow on stage at symphony space as he tells about the poems he chose. Thank you so much. It's just a delight to be here. I'm going to start with a poem which was kind of the start of a love of poetry for me. Uh, When I was a little boy, my grandmother, Ina B. Lithgow, used to not read but recite long, epic poems to my brother, my two sisters, and me. She grew up on Nantucket, in the late 19th century. She came from a generation where learning and reciting poetry was a big part of children's education and people's lives. Long before movies, TV, or even radio, people entertained each other, especially on islands. Uh, So Grammy, amazingly, still had these poems in her head, and she would just thrill us with them. And that is my first memory of really being enthralled by poetry, uh, both by the poem and by the amazing fact that Grammy knew these long poems by heart. Not only that, I can't say for sure, but uh, it seems to me that I must have had some inkling of the metaphorical power of the moment. The poem I'm going to recite for you first is called The Deacon's Masterpiece or The Wonderful One Horse Shay, A Logical Tale. And it's about a horse-drawn carriage made of the very finest leather and wood and steel built to last. Nothing goes wrong with it until the very day, hour, minute that it turns a hundred years old. And all of a sudden, with no warning, it flies into a million pieces. Now, I must have been aware that I would lose my Grammy soon. I couldn't imagine her razor-sharp mind ever failing her, not until the very last. This may have been my very first 
poetic insight at age seven. My Grammy was the wonderful one hoss Shay. Here is the Deacon's Masterpiece, or the wonderful one hoss Shay by Oliver Wendell Holmes. And like my grandmother, I know it by heart. <laughs> Have you heard of the wonderful one hoss Shay that was built in such a logical way, it ran a hundred years to a day, and then of a sudden it, ah, but stay, I'll tell you what happened without delay, scaring the parson into fits, frightening people out of their wits. Did you ever hear of that, I say? 1755, Georgius Secundus was then alive, snuffy old drone of the German hive. That was the year that Lisbon town saw the earth open and gulp her down, and Braddock's army was done so brown, left without a scalp to its crown. It was on that terrible earthquake day that the deacon finished the one-horse shay. Now, in building of chaises, I tell you what, there is always somewhere a weakest spot in hub-tire fellow, in spring or thill, in panel or crossbar, or floor, or sill, in screw, bolt, thorough brace, lurking still, find it somewhere. You must and will, above or below, or within or without, and that's the reason, beyond a doubt, that a chaise breaks down, but doesn't wear out. But the deacon swore, as deacons do, with an I do vum and an I tell you, he would build one chaise to beat the town and the county and all the country round. It should be so built that it couldn't break down. For, said the deacon, tis mighty plain that the weakest place must stand the strain. And the way to fix it, as I maintain, is only just to make that place as strong as the rest. So the deacon inquired of the village folk where he could find the strongest oak that couldn't be split, nor bent, nor broke. That was for spokes and floor and sills. He sent for lancewood to make the thills. The crossbars were ash from the straightest trees and the panels of white wood that cuts like cheese but lasts like iron for things like these. The hubs of logs from the settler's elm, last of its timber, they couldn't sell them. Never an axe had seen their chips, and the wedges flew from between their lips. Their blunt ends frizzled like celery tips. Step and prop iron, bolt and screw, spring, tire, axle and linchpin too, steel of the finest, bright and blue. Thoroughbrace? Bison skin, thick and wide, boot, top, dasher, from tough old hide found in the pit when the tanner died. That was the way he put her through. There, said the deacon. Now she'll do. Do. I tell you, I rather guess. She was a wonder. Nothing less. Colts grew horses, beard turned gray. Deacon and deaconess dropped away. Children and grandchildren where were they? But there stood the wonderful one-horse shay, fresh as on Lisbon earthquake day. Eighteen hundred came and found the deacon's masterpiece, strong and sound. Eighteen hundred increased by ten. Handsome carriage, they called it then. 
1,820 came, running as usual, all the same. 30 and 40 at last arrive. Then come 50 and 55. Little of all we value here wakes on the morn of its hundredth year without both feeling and looking queer. In fact, there's nothing keeps its youth, so far as I know, but a tree and truth. This is a moral that runs at large. Take it, you're welcome, no extra charge. <laughs> First of November, the earthquake day. There are traces of age in the one horse shay, a general flavor of mild decay, but nothing local, as one might say. Well, there couldn't be, for the deacon's art had made it so like in every part that there wasn't a place for one to start. For the wheels were just as strong as the fills, and the floor was just as strong as the sills, and the panels were just as strong as the floor, and the whipple tree, neither less nor more, and the back crossbar as strong as the fore, and yet, as a whole, it is past a doubt. In another hour, it will be worn out. First of November, 55. This morning, the parson takes a drive. Now, small boys, get out of the way. Here comes the wonderful one-horse shay drawn by a rat-tailed, you-necked bay. Hut up, said the parson, and off went they. The parson was working his Sunday's text, had got to fifthly, and stopped, perplexed at what the Moses was coming next. All at once, the horse stood still close by the meeting house on the hill. First a shiver, then a thrill, then something decidedly like a spill. And there was the parson upon a rock at half past nine by the meeting house clock, just the hour of the earthquake shock. What do you think the parson found when he got up and looked around? The poor old chaise in a heap or mound, as if it had been to the mill and ground. You see, of course, if you're not a dunce, how it went to pieces all at once, all at once, and nothing first, just as bubbles do when they burst. End of the wonderful one-horse shay. Logic is logic. That's all I say, as recited by Ina B. Lithgow, born January 24, 1882, died October 6, 1987. Rest in peace, Grammy. You know, I have to tell you something absolutely astonishing. Uh, this morning, doing a bunch of press interviews on the radio uh, for the Poets' Corner, I was speaking to a journalist from Cincinnati, Ohio, who asked me, is it true that you're descended from Anne Bradstreet, the first recognized American woman poet? Well, this was all news to me. 
He, he'd read this in Wikipedia. And the engineer quickly Googled Anne Bradstreet and genealogy, and a whole bunch of names came down. I was the last. I was indeed descended from Anne Bradstreet, but that's not the news. About halfway down this list of names was Oliver Wendell Holmes. <laughs> How about that? Now, this is one of my all-time heroes among actors and performers. Uh, I think the, the phrase New Vaudeville was invented just to describe this man and his brilliance. I'm sure most of you have seen his extraordinary work as a mime and a clown in pieces like uh, In Regard of Flight and Fool Moon. But then, like a butterfly emerging from a cocoon, he became one of our great dramatic actors. But of course, I most fondly remember him as the non-speaking pet from outer space, Pickles on Third Rock from the Sun. Please welcome Bill Irwin, the great Bill Irwin. Now, particularly those first few credits that I rattled off were Bill's fabulous sense of the absurd and of nonsense and of silly business on display. And that's why he's going to read two of the great nonsense poets of all time. He's going to start with Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll and go right on to the Jumblies by the first of our poems by Edward Lear. Bill? Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the baragoves, and the mamoraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son. The jaws that bite, the claws that catch, beware the jubjub burb, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxamy foe he sought, so rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while in thought. And as in oofish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snickersnack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy, O frabjous day, kaloo, kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe, all mimsy were the borogoves and the mummerats. Outgrabe. Jumblies by Edward Lear. They went to sea in a sieve, they did. In a sieve they went to sea, in spite of all their friends could say, in a winter's morn on a stormy sea, in a sieve they went to sea. And when the sieve turned round and round, and everyone cried, you'll all be drowned, they called aloud, our sieve ain't big, but we don't care a button, we don't care a fig. In a sieve we'll go to sea. 
Far and few, far and few are the lands where the Jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue, and they went to sea in a sieve. They sailed in a sieve, they did. In a sieve they sailed so fast with only a beautiful pea-green veil tied with a ribbon by way of a sail to a small tobacco pipe mast. And everyone said who saw them go, oh, won't they soon be upset, you know. For the sky is dark and the voyage is long, and happen what may, it's extremely wrong in a sieve to sail so fast. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the Jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue, and they went to sea in a sieve. The water it soon came in, it did. The water it soon came in, so they keep them dry, they drop their feet in a pinky paper all folded neat, and they fastened it down with a pin. And they passed the night in a crockery jar, and each of them said, How wise we are. <laughs> Though the sky be dark and the voyage be long, yet we never can think we were rash or wrong while round in our sieve we spin. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the Jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue, and they went to sea in a sieve. And all night long they sailed away, and when the sun went down, they whistled and warbled a moony song to the echoing sound of a coppery gong in the shade of the mountains brown. Oh, Tim below, how happy we are. When we live in a sieve and a crockery jar, and all night long in the moonlight pale, we sail away with a pea-green sail in the shade of the mountains brown. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue, and they went to sea in a sieve. They sailed to the western sea, they did, to land all covered with trees. And they bought an owl and a useful cart and a pound of rice and a cranberry tart and a hive of silvery bees. And they bought a pig and some green jackdaws and a lovely monkey with lollipop paws and 40 bottles of rainbow ree and no end of Stilton cheese. Far and few, far and few are the lands where the jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue. And they went to sea in a sieve. And in 20 years, they all came back in 20 years or more. And everyone said, how tall they've grown. <laughs> For they've been to the lakes and the Torrible Zone in the hills of the Chankly Boar. And they drank their health and gave them a feast of dumpling made of beautiful yeast. And everyone said, if we only live, we too will go to sea in a sieve to the hills of the Chankly Boar. Far and few, far and few are the, the lands where the, the Jumblies live. Their heads are green and their hands are blue. And they, and they went, went to sea in a sieve. sieve. Well, this next poem is a torrent of words. And we are doing it as a duet. If I Told Him, a completed portrait of Picasso by Gertrude Stein. If I told him, would he like it? Would he like it if I told him? Would he like it? Would Napoleon? Would Napoleon? Would he, would he like it? If Napoleon, if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon, would he like it if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon? Would he like it if Napoleon, if Napoleon, if I told him, if I told him, if Napoleon, if Napoleon, if I told him? If I told him, would he like it? Would he like it if I told him? Now. Not now. And now. Now. Exactly as, as kings. Feeling full for it. Exactitude as kings. So to beseech you as full as for it. Exactly or as kings. Shutters shut and opens, so do queens. Shutters shut and shutters and so shutters shut and shutters and so and so shutters and so shutters shut and so shutters shut 
and shutters and so and so shutters shut and so and also and also and so and so and so and also exact resemblance to exact resemblance the exact resemblance as exact as a resemblance exactly as resembling exactly resembling exactly in resemblance exactly a resemblance exactly and resemblance for this is so because now actively repeat at all now actively repeat at all now actively repeat at all have hold and hear actively repeat at all i judge Judge. As a resemblance to him. Who comes first? Napoleon the first. Who comes to, coming, coming to, who goes there as they go they share? Who shares all, all is, as all as, as yet or as yet? Now to date, now to date, now and now and date and the date. Who came first? Napoleon the first. Who came first? Napoleon the first. Who came first? Napoleon first. Presently. Exactly do they do. First exactly. Exactly do they do. First exactly. And first exactly. Exactly do they do. And first exactly and and exactly. And do they do. At first exactly and first exactly and do they do. The first exactly. And do they do. The first exactly. At first exactly. First as exactly. At first as exactly. Presently. As presently. As as presently. He, 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 and he, and he, and, and he, and he, and he, and, and as, and as he, and as he, and he. He is, and as he is, and he is, and as he is, he is, he is, and as he, and he, and as he, he is, and he, and he, and he, and, and he, and he. Can curls rob, can curls quote, quotable. As presently. As exactitude. As trains. Has trains. Has trains. As trains. As trains. Presently. Proportions. Presently. As proportions as presently. Father and father. Was the king or room? Father and weather. Was there, was there, was there, was there, what was there, was there, was, what was there, was there, 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 was there? Weather and in there. As even say so. One. I land. Two. I land. Three. The land. Three. The land. Three. The land. Two, I land. Two, I land. One, I land. Two, I land. As a so. They cannot. A note. They cannot. A float. They cannot. They don't. They cannot. They as denote. Miracles play. Play fairly. Play fairly well. Oh, well. As well. As or as presently. Let me recite what history teaches. History History teaches. That was word perfect, by the way. (laughs) I urge you to check it out. (laughs) The Tiger by William Blake. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil? What dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? 
tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Bill's going to read three jewel-like poems by William Carlos Williams. The Red Wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox in which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. The Thinker. My wife's new pink slippers have gay pompons. There is not a spot or a stain on their satin toes or their sides. All night long, they lie together under the bed's edge. Shivering, I catch sight of them and smile in the morning. Later, I watch them descending the stair, hurry through the doors and round the table, moving stiffly with a shake of their gay pompons, and I talk to them in my secret mind out of pure happiness. And our last poem, also as a duet, is our second poem by Edward Lear. The Owl and the Pussycat. (laughs) Feel free to read along with us. (laughs) The Owl and the Pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar. Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are. What a beautiful pussy you are. Pussy said to the owl, you elegant fowl, (laughs) how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, Let us be married, too long we have tarried, but what shall we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day to the land where the bong tree grows, and there in a wood a piggywig stood with a ring at the end of his nose, his nose, his nose with a ring at the end of his nose. Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? Said the piggy, I will. So they took it away and were married next day by the turkey who lives on the hill. They dined on mince and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon. And hand in hand, on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon. The moon. The moon. They They danced danced by by the the light light of of the moon. That delicious sampling of poetry from John Lithgow's anthology, The Poet's Corner, was performed on stage by John and his friend Bill Irwin. We'll be back after a break with John Lithgow reading a scary classic. You are listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide from PRI, Public Radio International.
Welcome back to Selected Shorts, recorded live at Symphony Space in New York City. Symphony Space's season is sponsored by Zabar's, offering the nation a taste of New York. Coffee, gourmet foods, and gift baskets available online at zabars.com. In addition to being the editor of a poetry collection and the author of many children's books, the award-winning actor John Lithgow is one hell of a story reader. As you'll hear in a moment, his style of reading is not so much that of the laid-back, cool narrator, but rather the vivid theatricality of the teller of exciting tales who really gets into it with passion and fervor. Nothing could be more suited to this style than the story John chose for his program, the macabre tale The Monkey's Paw by the English writer W.W. W. Jacobs. Now get under the covers, kids, and don't be too scared as John Lithgow reads The Monkey's Paw. One. Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked a comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should hardly think that he'd come tonight, said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. Oh, that's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White, with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Pathways are bog and the roads are torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses on the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. <laughs> Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. Ah, there he is, said Herbert White, as the gate banged too loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, Tut, tut, and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. <laughs> Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major shook hands and, taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of strange scenes and doughty deeds of wars and plagues and strange peoples. 
Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. Well, he don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man. Just look round a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastwise, nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket. It's just an ordinary little paw dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it. Curiously. And, and what is there special about it? inquired Mr. White as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, said the sergeant major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. Well, well, why don't you have three, sir, said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him in the way that middle ages want to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. And did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. And has anybody else wished? inquired the old lady. The first man had his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. Well, if you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morris, said the old man at last. What do you keep it for? The soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. Well, if you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly, would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his front finger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. 
Well, if you don't want it, Morris, said the old man, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire again like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his new possession closely. How, how do you do it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. <laughs> Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and then all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket and, placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldiers' adventures in India. Well, if the tale about the monkey paw is not more truthful than those he's been telling us, said Herbert as the door closed behind their guest, just in time for him to catch the last train, we shan't make much out of it. Did you give him anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, he said, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. Ha! <laughs> Likely, said Herbert, with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with, and you can't be henpecked. He darted round the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White armed with an antimacassar. <laughs> Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I, I, I don't know what to wish for. That's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. Well, if you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you, said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for 200 pounds, then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor, as I wished it twisted in my hands like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son, as he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind. There's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled upon all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert as he bade them good night, and something horrible squatting upon top of the wardrobe, watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. 
The old man sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that with an uneasy laugh he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. Two. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, Herbert laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. I suppose all old soldiers are the same, said Mrs. White. The idea of our listening to such nonsense... How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could 200 pounds hurt you, father? Oh, might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said the things happened so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert, as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed, and following him to the door, watched him down the road, and returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity. All of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired Sergeant Major's abibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said, as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it. I just... Well, what's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the 200 pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness, Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it and then with sudden resolution flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White at the same moment placed her hands behind her and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business, but he was, at first, strangely silent. 
I was asked to call, he said at last, and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Moore and Megan's. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? she asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed there. There, mother, he said hastily, sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir. And he eyed the other wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said. But he is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the old woman, clasping her hands. Oh, thank God for that. Thank She broke off suddenly, as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling old hand upon his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length, in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White, in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring blankly out the window and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It's hard. The other coughed, and rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss, he said, without looking round. I beg that you will understand I am only their servant, and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Moore and Megins disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words. How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. Three. In the huge new cemetery some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation, as though of something else to happen, something else 
which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectation gave place to resignation, the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You'll be cold. It is colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sound of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw, she cried wildly, the monkey's paw. He started up in alarm. Where, where, what is it, what's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. It's in the parlor, on the bracket, he replied, marveling why. She cried and laughed together and, bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what, he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied. We've only had one. Was not that enough? He demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking lips. Good God, you're mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she repented. Get it quickly and wish, oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get it and wish, cried the old woman, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides, he, I, I would not tell you else, but I, I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him toward the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way round the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed to change as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish, she cried in a strong voice. It's foolish and wicked. Wish, repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman, with burning eyes, 
walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burnt below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute or two afterward, the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but both lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time, screwing up his courage, the husband took the box of matches, and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another. And at the same moment, a knock. So quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible. Sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. And he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. Uh, 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 a rat, said the old man in shaking tones. It, a rat, it, it passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert, she screamed. It's Herbert. She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. What are you going to do? He whispered hoarsely. It's my boy. It's Herbert, she cried, struggling mechanically. I forgot it was two miles away. What are you holding before? Let go. I must open the door. For God's sake, don't let it in, cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son, she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. There was another knock and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bottom bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice, strained and panting, The bolt! she cried loudly. Come down! I can't reach it! But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw, if he could only find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw, and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase and a long, 
loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. The Monkey's Paw by W. W. Jacobs, read by John Lithgow. Selected Shorts is produced by Catherine Minton and directed by Isaiah Sheffer. The executive director of Symphony Space is Cynthia Elliott. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith, and our mix engineer is Stu Kennedy. Major support for Selected Shorts is provided by Houghton Mifflin, publishers of The Best American Short Stories, edited in 2007 by Stephen King, and by Barnes & Noble, booksellers since 1873, and on the web at bn.com. Additional support is given by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the Short Story the Lila Atchison Wallace Theatre Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Arthur Foundation, and members of the Symphony Space Literature Producers Circle. Public funds come from the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and the New York State Council on the Arts, a state agency. Selected Shorts is a co-production of Symphony Space and WNYC Radio in New York and is distributed nationwide by PRI, Public Radio International. Support for this program comes from this station and Public Radio International stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.